Hey everyone, first off, we at Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Minister Range, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my familiar strangers, Dr. Julia Brown. Hello. Our newest familiar stranger, taking over the role of Ian Pollock, Kylie Wong-Dolan. Hello. And Dr. Will Grant. Yeah, that's me. Hello. Hello. Thank you all for being with us today. Will comes to us from the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. That's right. He also runs the podcast, The Wholesome Show. Indeed. So, Julia, what do you think about this week? I've been thinking about the recent Australian Heart Foundation campaign called Heartless Words. And I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's an advertisement on the television that has caused a little bit of a stir because it's a series of family situations where people who are dying from heart disease admit that they didn't care enough about their kids to prioritise their health, essentially. And there are... Little snippets of like a mother and child. The mother's saying, every time I told you I loved you, I was lying. You were not my priority. And then there's a man speaking to his partner saying, I promised you my heart. I've given it away. And then there's another one of, a, again, a mother and child. They love to blame it on the mother. Because it's not just my heart, I don't care about. It's yours. The message is basically that if you love your kids, you'll take better care of your heart. Now, Due to the understandable insults that this has caused, not to mention how irresponsible it is to suggest that all heart conditions are caused by people's behaviours anyway, and the blaming the parents aspect is really not helpful, especially having the focus on females. The Heart Foundation revised the ad and completely cut out one scene altogether with a mother and child again. And from what I gather, it was a scene where a little kid says something along the lines of, Mum never loved me. If she did, she would have looked after her heart. More than anything, this controversy really struck me because it was a radical shift from focusing on the neoliberal individual body self towards the collective self, which we often talk about in anthropology, where your body is connected to your kin and your kin's body, that kind of familial social body. So I'm not agreeing with anything that happened in this ad, or that health conditions should ever be campaigned in this way. But hypothetically, I'm wondering what you guys think might have been a more effective way of going about the shift to that collective body without the victim blaming. I think that's a great question because I'm totally picking up what you're putting down there in terms of we've got to move to collectivize and think about how health issues are a collective problem. We did a series on The Wholesome Show once. It was called Life in a Herd because our health behaviors and our health results are based on the people around us and we influence them as well. And so if we can move to thinking about how we can all be healthier together, that's a good thing. Isn't there something to be said in reframing it so we can all be in this together? We can all take better health decisions? I think we thought about this in terms of care in a positive sense rather than like a deficit sense, rather than a lack of care towards your family. But if we thought about it as a way of showing love and showing care through looking after yourself or looking after so others. So like I'm, I'm quitting the so because I care. 
drinking less cream, eating less butter for my family or exactly. whatever is the health health behaviour that is not the thing you should do, whatever it is. That's Doing right. less of that for other people around you as a, making positive choices as opposed to I didn't do it, therefore I hate everyone around me. Yeah. yeah, so maybe this campaign could have been different if it had focused on the positives rather than someone dying and why they died. And not loving their children. <laughs> and not like, loving I their children. I don't think anyone ever has the right to go in and say, oh, you didn't love your children. It's just such an offensive thing. And I think it offends all the sensibilities we have about assuming good faith in other people. People love their children. People love their families. And yes, there's bad parents. And I think going out there and saying that people are acting in bad faith is, is really terrible. It's also interesting, I think, that in so much public health, social programs and community services, strengths-based orientation has become like the law of the land. Everything is about strengths-based now and Father Martin Seligman. And, and then we have this sort mm. of out of nowhere. Yeah, it's sort of the strengths-based approach to psychology and social services seems to be the only way we think about things now. But um, what a rupture of that discourse. Yeah, the Hart Foundation should have known better. I agree. I also think that unfortunately we've run out of time. Will, what are you thinking about this week? What am I thinking about? Well, what I've been trying to understand for a while now, and this week it's come up a bit more for me, is trying to understand what a story is, what a story is to us, what a story means to us, how a story works, how a story has worked throughout history. And I've got theories about this because I try and teach story to people and I try and talk about story to people. But I'm very glad that I've got three anthropologists around the table and I can ask you, what is a story to you? How do you define a story? I would start by saying that I think it's a narrative and it connects the past with the future in some way. So I think stories are always kind of orientated towards the present meaning. I definitely agree with the temporal idea that you suggested, Julia. I also think, yeah, I think stories can capture a moment in time, but also suggest a progression or a movement in time. So I feel like they bring together potentially dissonant things or separate things and, and allow them to kind of travel. Yeah, maybe it kind of stories give ideas significance, you know? It's a very hard question, Will. I didn't know it was so hard of a question. And this is the thing. I think we we tell primary school kids what's a story and they come up with a definition. They know, they recognize when they see one that you've just been read a story, you've just been told a story, you watched a story on TV, so they all know it. And they say, okay, a story's got a beginning and a middle and an end. And I, I quote this all the time. Alan Alder once said, you know, my cat has a beginning, a middle and an end. And so that's not enough. And a sequence of events that happened, that's not enough to be a story either. What more do we need to make it a story? And so the reason I wonder about this is what are the bits of story that really connect and really resonate for each of us? You know, what are the stories that we remember and why do we remember? It's not just because it's a sequence of events. It's about something deeper, isn't it? Something richer, more? I think that's what I was trying to get at with the significance in the present bit because the things that stay with you are the stories that tend to evolve like that's the other element mm. of storytelling right that the story is never told the same way okay. each time yeah. so it's something that takes on new meanings all right okay takes on new meanings as you travel through your life perhaps so a story is not fixed in that sense no 
I don't think so. I remember. I, I remember the only time I've cried in front of my um, uh, a class at university when I'm teaching a class is in telling a story from a movie, and and I was I was, I was feeling the emotion of that movie, and I go, "What's the point of that? It's it's it, it was a certain emotion, and that emotion hit me. And then, so why did why is that a thing that I'm remembering now? Why why is that a story then that resonated for me and a story I thought to tell in front of a class and a story that I'm retelling again that has got that added layer of emotion that I cried in front of a class? Maybe a story is a way of coming to terms with something. Oh, okay. That's good. You know? I like that. The mm. fact that you three very intelligent people work with stories all the time. You know, if, if I well, asked you what is oxygen, what is a microphone, what, what is anything, we can come to fairly clear definitional things and we might have debates around the edges. But something that we we sit down and how many hours per day do we engage in story? One, how, mm. many, how many hours of Netflix do you watch at night? One or two or three? I don't know. Uh, how, many, how many stories do you read on the newspaper in the morning? We engage with stories so much. Why is it hard to articulate what it is? Maybe they meant to do something, but do something different every time. Okay, do something. So for me, when you brought up stories, I, I thought that the most resonating stories that I've ever heard are moral tales. Yep. And I feel like... You mean fairy tales sort of thing or... or uh, fables. Fables, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pinocchio, yep. moral, yep. the moral story of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe, maybe they're supposed to communicate something that can be interpreted and emplaced and taken on differently, whoever hears them. And, and different stories can have different effects on, mm. on people as well. So one of the theories is that a story is, is a communication of emotion. Like it's a way of getting empathetic people to resonate with a certain emotion. And a good storyteller will whip up a room so that everyone is experiencing the same emotion at exactly the same time. And that's, that's what you want to do. You want to you harvest mm. everyone to get the exact same emotion at the same time. And then they'll feed off each other. Why do we do that? I feel like it was a cheeky question, Will, because I feel like you'd done research previously and you knew there was... I don't know the answer. It's a, it's a question that I deliberately ask a lot of people and I'm gobsmacked at how many different answers I get. I've never, I've never encountered anything that is so vastly underdetermined and yet so vastly engaged with. Do you think it's an issue with the term? Uh, Should we have different names for different kinds of stories so that we can grapple with them better? Maybe, maybe. There are, there are, there is, there are theories about there being like a certain number. There are only X many actual stories. Right. Oh, I, I think that's true and not true. Yeah, I think there are, they're all versions of stories in the same way as, as fractals. You know, a mathematical pattern that repeats whether you get bigger or smaller. It's the same pattern over, over and over again. I think stories are fractals in the sense that they continually repeat. In the same way as there's only so many ways of arranging the molecules in our body, that there are only so many possible humans. And, and it's far smaller than the number of atoms that are possible to fit into the universe. So there are only so many ways that a story can run, but there's, there's clear patterns that repeat over and over again. But are they human patterns or are they patterns that apply to any species? I don't think we're going to answer this well. question here right now, <laughs> unfortunately. I think we are going species. to have to move on. Kylie, what are you thinking about this week? Well, it's Reconciliation Week, and that's what I've been thinking about. For anybody outside Australia, uh, Reconciliation Week is a, a week that's held every year in Australia between the 27th of May and the 3rd of June, uh, and it marks and celebrates the anniversary of the 1967 referendum and the momentous 1992 Mabo decision that overturned the myth of terra nullius that held that Australian land belonged to no one before the arrival and occupation of British colonialists. So this week we remember and celebrate some huge symbolic moments in Australia's history 
but I think reconciliation is much broader than that. Reconciliation in a more present, everyday and lived sense is about, in my interpretation, how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous Australians coexist, how we live, interact, acknowledge and respect each other. And I think we're tasked this week with thinking about dwelling on this land together, what that means now, how that's looked in the past and how we can and need to do it better now and into the future. The theme for this year's Reconciliation Week is grounded in truth, walk together with courage. So it's about truth-telling, about grounding the relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous Australians in truth. So my question today is, what does it take to tell the truth about something you're afraid or ashamed of? I think you have to feel like you're going to be socially supported in terms of how that truth will be received by Risk those around you. Yeah. Or about, or about any truth-telling, surely. Um, do we set up enough support? Uh, for people telling uncomfortable, difficult truths, people accepting and, and saying they committed wrongs in the past. That's really compassionate rather than blaming the person who has held on to enough. I, I like that perspective. I think compassion is, is necessary. But then when we think about Australia... I can't fully say this because, you know, from a settler family, we've come to Australia and people in my family probably committed a lot of wrongs in the past. That asking for empathy for those coming forward is it's not mine to not mine to ask for but it's a it's a hope that if if I am to forgive a wrong a different wrong so not a, a reconciliation settlement wrong but a different sorts of thing having empathy for people who who have committed wrongs is the only way you're going to move past things I think and that but then that's putting the onus on uh, on victims which you know that's a that's a big thing to ask I like the way that you want to create a condition for that to be to feel more feel more close and possible and appealing. To be honest, part of telling the truth, particularly if you're uncomfortable with what the truth is, is actually dwelling in this experience of being uncomfortable. I think that a lot of people are really uncomfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. They don't like the idea that admitting to things will lead to these results. And I think that's something that as a country, particularly Australia, you know, people like John Howard talked about this, like this black armband version of history. And in some ways, it was this this effort to abnegate that sense and to push this forward, this this kind of idea of a, like a comfortable country, a com- country that was comfortable in, in dwelling in itself. But I think that's really, that in itself is problematic. And if we're going to be truthful and, and honest, we need to sit down and say, yeah, we, we do have this uncomfortable history. And the reality is that what, that we're all, that all of us in some ways are beneficiaries of a system of extirpation and exploitation. And that that doesn't necessarily mean that at the end of the day, the outcome of reconciliation is that everyone's going to feel comfortable and happy all the time, that people will continue to feel uncomfortable and that, that being uncomfortable, that, that sense of a lack of stability is an okay thing to, to dwell in. Yeah. I wonder if we were able to find ways to somehow connect the traumas that have resulted from the situation in Australia. If we could connect other kinds of difficult truths that non-Indigenous Australians face. So I'm not sure how we do that, but I feel like the way to open up a space in which people can talk about really uncomfortable things and to sit in that discomfort, you've got to create a space where everyone feels personally connected. You spoke before, Julia, um, when I asked you about story and you said it was a coming to terms Mm. with things. And I I wanted to pull more on that um, because what does what does that mean in terms of Australia's reconciliation story to come to terms with what has happened 
Is it being comfortable or is it being continually discomforted? Is it accepting our discomfort together? Can't, can't, we, can't we be happy together? I don't, I don't know. I don't, what, is, what, is the, what is the coming to terms with in our reconciliation story in Australia? Well, I think the coming to terms reflects the fact that it's unfinished. You know, it hasn't been resolved okay. yet. Yep, yep, yep. And that if, reconciliation in some senses in Australia will never be resolved. It's an ongoing project. Yeah, like there's, yeah. no, there's no end point in, in this colonial encounter. It's no, encounter. we've got to sit in that coming to terms phase, but I guess get to the point where we can wear it a little bit. I think what you said, Simon, about discomfort is very real. I think it might take losing comfort or sacrificing a level of comfort for the sake of somebody else to maybe come to terms together. But I think what we're lacking often in this conversation is what things might look like in the future and how I think we fail to look beyond the present when we think about looking at the past. And I think considering a future of discomfort is maybe not something we're we're willing or able to bear. Like you say, we should wear it. We should wear it going forward. But I think that's that's often missing from this conversation. We feel like we just need to look back, do it once, and then then it's over. Like there's a sort of final reconciliation. You can just say, um, sorry, and then, then it's all okay. Right, like, which well, evidently yeah. was not, not enough. No. I'm sorry, but we are constantly out of time, constantly on the move. The last person to speak is me. Uh, and this week I've been thinking about what happens when prophecy fails. Um, so obviously there's a very famous book called When Prophecy Fails. What I do want to talk about is this idea that the example that encouraged me to think about this was the most recent election. And so the general way that this was kind of organised was that Labor was going to waltz into victory, waltz into Parliament House with 52% of the vote. It was labelled the climate change election and all these things. And it resulted in yet another victory for the coalition, despite the fact that they've had six years of fairly tumultuous leadership and they put forward relatively few policies and so on. There's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of issues we could go into. But in effect it got me thinking about what happens when something that we build our lives around, something very momentous comes forward and then it doesn't come true. What do you guys think? What happens when something goes horribly wrong, when some major event doesn't turn out like it's meant to what's an anthropological reaction to that? Well, I should say that I didn't really feel much after the election because I kind of expected it to happen. Not because I definitely thought the coalition would win, but because my expectations were pretty low given what we've seen in world politics since 2016, right? So to me, I didn't feel that shock, but maybe that has meant that I'm disengaged from mm. the ramifications well, you understand of it. the like the idea, right? This idea that you put your, your life into like, I don't know, not a holding pattern necessarily, but you put certain ideas on the line, assuming that they will come true and then suddenly they don't. How do you then pick up the pieces? I think often lowering expectations is a little bit helpful <laughs> generally in <laughs> life. Expect disappointment, you'll be fine. All the no, time. Seriously, Dave. I think the more we peg our hopes on things to go a certain way, the more f***ed we are. Oh, go, Julia. I... Didn't feel the intense sting of of um, anticipation not going the right way in this election, but, but I, I was thinking when you're telling the story, Simon, about the the American election recently when Trump Trump was elected, and I think that was a that was a blow to 
America. America's a broken country, but it didn't need to get more broken. And I had to, to run an election party for the American embassy, and I had to do a balloon drop at the end. Yeah, so it was like a celebration of democracy, and it's like, yay, we're going we're gonna to drop the balloons now. And I remember whipping up the enthusiasm for that was very hard. The instant I got home after that, my wife and I were just like, let's put the Avengers on. We, can, we can't think about anything else other than the certainties of of candy floss that we know what's going to happen and we've got to retreat from the world like you said and retreat into something that we know will make us happy and then you pick yourself up but it takes time i think it does take time you got to come to terms with these things you've got to start wearing it in the new way and how do you think that it could be helped next time like should we not have these prophecies in the first place oh i think humanity lives on prophecy i think it's impossible to get rid of the idea of of prophecy. I think that's why I think lowering expectations is such a, such a sad kind of outcome. Just say, well, guys, what do you expect? The world's a pretty crappy place. It's I just... think I was thinking that there might be two reactions to this and I align with Will and Simon on just going into complete denial about what happened. I too had a, a response on the Saturday night. Like I cleaned my bathroom. I was having a, a little <laughs> dinner party with my housemates and I was like, excuse me, I need to have control <laughs> over something. And I think... But that was also a kind of denial. I think sometimes we also can overcompensate mm-hmm. and so really like try to take control over larger things or, or take control over things that will, will help us toward that grand prophecy in future. I think after the taking control, and I can imagine, you know, this is a psychologizing of this sort of phenomena, but there's a retreat, a retreat into um, stable certainties. You might get control over your bathroom, you know yourself, or you might go and watch the Avengers because you know yourself. But then there's the stepping out into public again, stepping out into those networks that have all had that stone thrown into them and have all changed a little bit. They've all crystallized in a different sort of way. But then you've got to play with those networks and see okay they still exist they still exist everyone's still there things are a little bit different and then you see you know see little shoots of hope I mean I went to a meeting long not long after of climate change academics and and there are a lot of people that were pessimistic but there are some people that are like okay not what we wanted but there are opportunities here there's ways of reframing our work and saying okay okay Scott Morrison didn't have a huge agenda in climate change but now maybe he's got some authority but there's there's things we can still do there's still work to be done so yes mm. and I think as much as I did feel a bit cynical anyway on the night I also switched into this curiosity mode like oh okay well yep it's happened again we're obviously not listening to what Australians want you know like we there was this sense of well we've got a lot of work to do especially as social scientists yes get in touch I felt that incredibly after the um, not that I'm American or anything like that but after the Trump election and after Brexit yeah and, and here now we we have a job to do we have a job to understand and to assist and work with uh, the people in in our societies who may feel marginalised and not feeling whatever it is about the modern world that's working for them. So there's work. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Dr Julia Brown. Thank you very much, Simon. Ms Kylo Wong-Dolan. Thanks, Simon. And Dr Will Grant. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, and myself, Simon Theobald, your host here today. Uh, today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other places, including Spotify. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet to us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. 
Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange. Bye.